of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. This time around, I was lucky enough to welcome back to the show Mr. Ollie Lovell, and it's an absolute cracker. But before that, a quick word from our lovely sponsors. Cue the fancy music. This episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast is proudly supported by Arc Maths. Now, one of the biggest changes to my planning and teaching over the last five years is my increased awareness of the importance of providing retrieval opportunities for my students. In the past, all my thoughts and efforts went into planning questions, activities and explanations. In other words, stuff to help students get something into their heads. What was severely lacking was opportunities to help my students get that knowledge out again. By assuming that just because students could do something they'd just been taught, it must have been learnt, I found myself in a vicious spiral of teaching something, moving on, and then having to teach it again and again and again when students had frustratingly forgotten something that they once knew. The problem is, of course, that scheduling in retrieval opportunities is difficult, especially when each child in a class has different priorities in terms of what they need practice on. Mirren needs more practice of straight line graphs, whereas Josh needs to work on factorising quadratic expressions. What's the solution? Well, step forward, Arc Maths. ArcMaths is an app that's currently available for the iPad, but with hopes of expansion to other devices in the future. The entire Key Stage 3 and 4 curriculum is broken down into 1,550 slightly different skills and pieces of knowledge called microtopics. Each microtopic is a set of associated questions which test that particular skill or knowledge. How are the questions chosen, I hear you ask? Well, there are 12 questions in a session, which are specifically chosen for each pupil. Question 1 is a times table multiplication, question 2 is a times table division, question 3 and 4 are revision questions, and then it starts to get really clever. The schedule of spaced practice dictates what questions are selected for the remaining questions. Forgotten microtopics appear with greater frequency, new microtopics are introduced if space allows. What about differentiation? Well, each session is specific to the attainment level of that pupil. Individual weaknesses are addressed immediately and also subsequently. So Mirren's session is different to Josh's session. What about teacher workload? Because this is the big hassle when you're trying to do this manually. Well, questions are chosen, created, delivered and marked automatically by the app. Follow-up practice questions then self-generate. Gaps in knowledge are recorded and tracked automatically. And pupils create their own accounts so administration is kept to the minimum. How do students answer their answers? Well, this is where the app gets even smarter with incredibly impressive handwriting recognition technology. Being able to draw square root signs, write indices and fractions and complex algebraic expressions without having to go anywhere near a keyboard is a massive step forward for maths online learning tech tools. You can also draw the diagrams too, much as if it was a worksheet. 
Now, ArcMaths is designed for the classroom. It could be a 10 minute activity suitable for a lesson starter with students working on their own devices. No instructions are needed, they can just get cracking. Or the app could be used at home with students building it into their daily or weekly routine outside of the classroom. Now, I've been playing around with the app for a while and it is brilliant. It can even recognize my dodgy handwriting. The app is built on research that'll be very familiar to listeners of the Mr. Barton Maths podcast. Bjork, Rodiger and Roa surrounding memory and even the uncluttered interface would please John Sweller, allowing students to focus purely on the mathematics. To find out more, just visit arceducation.co.uk and that's arc with a C, not a K. And ARC are currently looking for schools to try out their app for free. So if you're interested, there's a link at the top of the show notes page of this podcast episode where you can register your interest in a free trial. Check out ARC Maths, ARC with a C, and help your students remember what they once knew. As ever, if you're interested in spreading the word about your product, service or event to thousands of the very best listeners in the whole wide world, then just drop me an email at mrbartonmaths at gmail.com to find out about the sponsor packages available. Anyway, back to today's episode with Ollie Lovell. Now, as many of you may well know, Ollie is a maths teacher from sunny Australia. He's also been head of department. He's a keen blogger. He's a research ravager, a pioneering podcaster, and now a best-selling author. This marks Ollie's third appearance on the show. He was first back on back in 2018, where we discussed a whole manner of things, including planning lessons and running a maths department. It's one of my favourite episodes, so please go back and check that one out if you've missed it. And then Ollie returned to the show last year as part of my Teaching From Home series to discuss the challenges of teaching remotely. This time around, I wanted to deep dive into cognitive load theory, following the publication of Ollie's best-selling book, Cognitive Load Theory in Action. But I didn't just want to retread old ground that's been done so many times before. So we chatted about the following things and plenty more besides. Firstly, I just wanted to catch up with Ollie. What's he been up to since we last spoke? And that includes a new job and a new business venture. Then I asked Ollie if someone had never heard of cognitive load theory before, how would he explain it to them in one sentence? And then a big question, exactly why should teachers care about cognitive load theory? And then I thought we'd get a bit topical. What are the implications of cognitive load theory for online learning? And Ollie has some fascinating insights there that we could all use. Did Ollie change his mind about anything whilst researching the book? And then we get on to four things that I still, if I'm honest, don't fully understand about cognitive load theory, despite having read all I can about it and even spoke about it. So I'm talking about the role of working memory and in terms of working things out, writing things down on paper, how do those two things work? And what exactly is cognitive overload and how does it differ just from students thinking hard? Element interactivity. This is something I've always struggled with, particularly with regard to mathematics, because that's all about connections between uh, topics. And surely maths is just full of connections. So doesn't everything in maths have a high element interactivity? And finally, we get on to goal-free problems. Aren't they just open-ended problems? Or is there a difference? 
Now, I think this is an absolutely great episode to launch the 2021 series of the podcast. It's five years old. Can you believe it? Ollie is super enthusiastic and super insightful. I learned so much from this interview and I really hope you will too. Uh, just before we crack on, a very quick reminder that I have a whole host of online CPD opportunities available, both free and premium, covering a wide range of areas, and they're all at craig.barton.podia.com. That's P-O-D-I-A. Do check them out if you're interested. Oh, and just one other thing. If you're interested in snapping up Ollie's book, Cognitive Load Theory in Action, um, having heard Ollie on this show, then I'm pleased to say that John Cat, the publisher of the, of the book, are offering a 40% discount to Mr. Barton. Barton Maths podcast listeners. It pays to listen, it really does. Just type in the code MrBarton40, that's MrBarton40, into the box at checkout for your discount. I'll put that uh, promo code MrBarton40 in the show notes as well, just in case you forget. Anyway, let's get going. So get your pen and paper at the ready and let me introduce Ollie Lovell. I really hope you enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, it gives me great pleasure to welcome back to the podcast one of our favourites, Mr. Ollie Lovell. So, hello, Ollie. Hello, Craig. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure, mate. Um, so, first off, whenever we have a guest back on the show, instead of asking the usual speed dating questions, because uh, listeners can go back to previous episodes with you to listen to those, I prefer to just have a bit of a catch-up. So, we we spoke um, last, during the, the first kind of lockdown when schools were closed back in 2020. So what have you been up to since then, Ollie? Because I, obviously I follow you on Twitter. I, I get your newsletter and so on. You've been doing loads. I think we're reaching kind of peak Ollie Lovell season at the moment, where it's, it all seems to be kicking off for you. So t- tell us about some of the things that's going on. Oh, that's that's peak Ollie Lovell season. Haven't heard that one before. Okay. And also, actually, <laughs> before we start, I wanted to wish you a happy, you and Isaac, a happy birthday for yesterday. Oh, it's very kind. Thank you very much. Yeah, I feel very old at the moment, old and tired. But yeah, fingers crossed I'll get through this. But yeah, and, what, what have you been up to, mate? Um, yeah, so... I mean, COVID is one thing I've been up to and we've all been up to, I guess, but um, that provided a lot of time for me uh, away from away from school, just doing the online thing as, as for everyone. And in that time, I managed to uh, write a book, which is the topic of today's discussion. That's that's the main the main news, I guess. Uh, actually, my, my partner would probably disagree. We also got engaged. So that's some other news. Oh, People congratulations, mate. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> So it's exciting as well. Hey, what was your, what was the technique there? Any any anything special going on with the proposal? Oh yeah, all right. So this is a good insight into Ollie Lovell uh, right here. So, <laughs> um, so I, my partner had a ring that was given to her by a grandma. Not a not a nice ring, just a ring from a two dollar shop. Um, but it still, <laughs> still still meant something to her. I was starting to get pretty haggard, and I said offhand to her about a year ago, oh, when that breaks, I'll buy you a new one." Um, so I came home from from a bike ride one day, and she was like, "Oh, Ollie, uh, my ring's broken," and uh, so I went into a bit of a panic and uh, realized that I had to carry through on my promise. So you know, we went during COVID, during lockdown, we were going for a walk every afternoon. So just on that walk, at a nice spot, he paused and I uh, popped the question. Very nice, very smooth. I love it. I love it. Excellent stuff. Oh, congratulations, mate! That's that's brilliant news. Thanks, um, man. Could, just, just before I ask you about a couple of other things, um, just, just give us a, paint us a picture for the UK in terms of kind of um, lockdown and schools closing and stuff. Are, are you just back to teaching face to face now, or is is anything different going on? Uh, depends where you are. So here in Victoria, uh, we are 
yeah, we're getting back. We're about to, in fact, it's my first day back tomorrow, um, which is Monday. And on Friday, we have our first classes. And right now, it is more or less back to usual. The only restriction is on the size of gatherings. So the school that I'm joining this year, um, we have a chapel and we won't be able to run chapel as per usual because there'll be too many people in one room. Um, so we just have to spread that out. But apart from that, it's relatively similar to, to usual. Wow, fantastic. And that was the other thing I wanted just to touch upon. You've got a new job, right? I do. Yeah. So um, I've joined Brighton Grammar, which is a private all boys school, which is somewhere you know, I thought I'd be a public school uh, teacher for my whole life. But I was really, really drawn to Brighton for several reasons. One was um, they were keen to craft a role for me that kind of matched my my interests really well. So they've given me a couple of classes to focus on as well as uh, a researcher role in their Crowther Centre, which is like a research arm. Um, and they've got just got a really unrelenting focus on research. So they've hosted Research Ed uh, a couple of times now at their own expense. Um, and they're really uh, passionate about sharing their resources. So they make all the research that they do freely available to people. They allow uh, people from rural schools like rural schools to send like a, a person to to their PD for free and things like that. Um, and I was also really impressed by their focus on positive masculinity for an old boys school. So yeah, I'm really, really keen to join the team and, and keen to get started tomorrow. Oh, fantastic. Superb. Brilliant stuff, mate. And the only other thing I wanted just to touch on, unless, unless there's anything else you, you want to share, is you're not content with kind of conquering the world of teaching and now uh, book writing. You're all, and podcasting, of course, you're also now um, a, a, an entrepreneur conquering the world of startups so talk, talk to us about then talk, talk to us a little bit about dendro mate if that's right because i think you mentioned this a little bit last time you're on the show and uh, just just kind of checking out the website this morning i see it's come on a little bit so what's going on with that for people who haven't heard of it yeah still still early stages i don't know if we're conquering any worlds yet but um yeah <laughs> at dendro we're pretty keen to help people uh, experience maximum productivity uh, in their self-directed learning so I guess a, a concrete way to explain that and explain what Dendro does for perhaps your listeners is I talk about some challenges that I had with my own like learning processes and then how how Dendro has kind of grown out of that. And I'll, I'll mention this is a project um, I've joined George Zonios, who I had on the podcast a couple of years back. And after George came on and talked about Dendro, I thought, gee, this is great. So I, I got in, involved as a co-founder. But um, so I had a couple of issues with trying to stay on top of education research. One was that I couldn't, I found it really hard to kind of prioritize what I wanted to read. Like there's just so much out there and, you know, Twitter is a never ending flow of great stuff. So it was like, how do I, how do I prioritize this? Uh, And the second is, you know, remembering, how do I actually remember and kind of organize all this amazing stuff I'm I'm coming across? So yeah, Dendro solves both those problems. Uh, by prioritizing, like now if I come across something on Twitter, I literally just throw it in Dendro. It goes into a feed uh, and then every morning, you know, early in the morning, I'll get up and I'll spend half an hour on Dendro and it will just feed me uh, the stuff that I've put in there. And then each day I can adjust my priorities and say, I want to see more on assessment today. I want to see more on uh, X, Y, or Z today. It'll help me with that. So that's really good and really taking the pressure off there. Uh, and then with the remembering, because I upload what I'm going to read in there, it's got a, like an interactive reading interface. And I, if I find a quote that I really like um, or something like that, you know, I actually, if I think back, I remember from from your second book, Craig, one of the takeaways there for me was that uh, one of the biggest mistakes you made was you used to always differentiate too early in the learning process, mm. right? Mm. So, for example, I read that. Um, I just quickly made a note of that in Dendro. And then Dendro brought that up to, to me um, frequently enough 
uh, and in a way that I was able to retain that idea for the long term. Um, so it helped aids with that remembering, built upon many things you've spoke about before, space-based practice, retrieval practice and things like that. So, so yeah, those are things. Oh, and also because of the way it interleaves content, uh, it actually assists with creativity. So I used it as a big tool for writing the book and it really helped me to come up with some, some, some of the valuable frameworks that were espoused in the book. And has this has this replaced Anki for you now, Al? Oh, because I know you're a big user of, of of that. Is this is it Dendro all the way now for you, or, or do all the tools still play a role? I uh, yeah, I use it in tandem with Anki. So at the moment, I'm using Anki for a couple of main reasons. If I have a quick note that I know I want to memorize, so for example, joining a new school, there's like a hundred people I need to get to know. So I've actually like <laughs> got everybody's face made an Anki card out of them and that's going to help me remember everybody. I'll probably do it with my students as well. Uh, I don't know if I should have said that. I meant to pretend to be good at good at names, but no, it's quite strategic. Um, so there's that. And also um, I'm learning some German now and I do a language exchange on a Sunday night and I'll cut that up and make uh, Anki cards with um, kind of the voice recordings from my language exchange partner. And, and so I use it for that as well. But for most long form stuff and education related stuff, I use Dendro now. That's brilliant. And, and listeners can listen back to um, Ollie's previous appearances where he talks about using Anki in the classroom as well. It's it's, fa- it's fascinating stuff. And um, that's, that's brilliant, that, mate. Well, let's move on to the book then. So um, Cognitive Load Theory in Action, part of um, the In Action series edited by Tom Sherrington. So first off, um, wh- why Cognitive Load Theory? Or why, why did you want to write about that? Yeah, well, my, my journey with this kind of Cognitive Load Theory started quite a while ago, and it was a big part of my own... I don't know, um, revolution, I guess, as a learner mm. myself. So I I really, I didn't pay much attention to trying to remember things when I was a student. I kind of, you know, a good example is history class. I was like, why would I want to remember these people? Why would I want to remember these dates? <laughs> things like that. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, third or fourth year uni when I started to try to learn Mandarin. And I thought, gee, I better do some research about how to learn because this <laughs> is really hard, uh, that I came across Dan Willingham's Why Students in Like School, um, and he introduced the idea of the model of memory um, and that was, and you know, the importance of background knowledge and actually remembering things. Uh, and that was just an absolute revelation for me um, and completely changed how I approached all learning from that point onward. You know, I got into Anki and things like that. Um, so that was kind of the, the core, the nugget that got me interested. And then obviously everyone talks about um, Dylan Williams' tweet in January of um, 2017. Uh, that was another impetus for me to dive a little bit deeper. Then I managed to have a chat with with John Sweller. And at every at every point in the journey, I found that cognitive load theory just had more and more to offer. And it was just a rabbit hole that I could go further and further down. So um, when the opportunity to write the book came up, I thought, you know, what what better way to to go further down that rabbit hole and also to have an excuse to ask John Sweller to kind of uh, hold my hand and be a, be a bit of a mentor um, for the process. So yeah, jumped at it. That's absolutely fantastic, man. We obviously we're going to dive deep into this. I'll just say at the outset as well. Um, I had a fairly similar journey with you when it, when it comes to cognitive load theory, but one thing I found that really helpful was reading your, um, your blog interview series with John Sweller a couple of years ago. And that was absolutely fantastic that, um, and I know some of the books kind of based around some of those early insights, and then you've had a chance obviously to chat to Sweller again. So I'll link to those in the show notes because there are absolutely a fascinating series of posts where you could ask some, you know, really kind of pertinent questions to the guy who came up with it. So I'd strongly recommend those to, to, to listeners 
listeners to check out. But before before we dive deep, Paul, this is a question I asked Peps McRae when he came on the show um, about a month ago now when he was talking about motivation. I don't understand how you write so concisely. I don't know how you've managed to get like distill cognitive load theory, the key insights into a pretty kind of thin book. And I don't mean that in a, in a disparaging way at all. Like concise is good. How have you managed to do that? I was, I'm hoping you're going to say, let's say like draft one was maybe 300,000 words or something. And then some ruthless editor chops it out. Or did you manage to get it quite concise from the off? Was that a challenge at all? Uh, yeah, it was a challenge. Um, thanks for the, the compliment, Craig. And it's it's very generous of you to com- compare my writing to Pep's because he does a fantastic job. So that's very nice of you. Um, yeah, a few things, I guess. I knew you were going to ask me this question. So I did a bit of reflecting. I think one thing that was really helpful is the idea of Parkinson's law. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. But for, for listeners, it's the idea that the task will always expand to fit the time allocated. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and in this case, it's more, more a case of, you know, the writing will always expand to fit the, the word limit allocated. <laughs> So, you know, when, when I chatted to Tom Sherrington and Alex Sharrett from John Cat, they had, you know, in mind a book around 20,000 words or so. Um, and so that just really, really forced me to try to, um, you know, boil it down as concisely as I possibly could. Um, I ended up, ended up being about 35,000 words, though, so I did go significantly over. But anyway, <laughs> the target of 20,000 helped. Um, one other thing, it's kind of in line with... Ex- direct instructions, this idea of the bulletproof definition. So for, for, for listeners, explicit direct instruction suggests that instruction starts with a bulletproof definition, which is just a single sentence that summarizes what you want students to get out of that lesson. And so you start the lesson with that single sentence, and then the effect of the lesson is to basically unpack the sentence and help students understand it to the level of depth that um, that is necessary. So that's also another way that I tried to kind of shape each chapter and each idea I said how could I say this in one sentence uh, and then unpack that Uh, Ah. yeah so that was really valuable um another thing is like just being willing to throw stuff out so you're very correct I I I probably wrote 80 to 90,000 words actually trying to put this book together and then ended up with the 35 so there was a lot of throwing out there um and then this isn't so much about concise writing, but more clear writing. And it's linked in with cognitive load theory. I think trying to reduce split attention for your reader is just really important. So an example, coming back to that, boil it down to a single sentence summary, you know, start the, start the chapter with that foreground it, and then just refer to that single sentence summary multiple times throughout to try to help remind the listener. And also if, you know, if say cognitive load theory is made of five principles, And you're going through, if you introduce those five principles at the start, don't assume that when you say the second principle, they'll remember what you said the second principle was. So you actually repeat for the reader. The second principle was da-da-da, building on that, et cetera. Um, So that's another one. But, um, yeah, so, yeah, four, four key points for you there. That's super fantastic. Yeah, I need to get better at that, Ollie. That's that's brilliant stuff. Um, right. Well, it's, it's interesting. We were talking a little bit um, off mic just before we started recording that this is something, cognitive load theory, that you've obviously been speaking a lot about recently. And certainly over the last five years of this podcast, it's been probably the most recurring theme that comes up again and again. And what, what I want to get out of this uh, this conversation is obviously for, for listeners who are new to this or are not quite as familiar, we certainly want to do a bit of an overview and so on. But also I'm looking to, to cover new ground. And that's what I really liked about your book it, it certainly 
yeah, raise, raise some new questions for me, got me thinking about some new things. So we're going to dive into into the, those kind of areas. But just before we start off, if you were to bump into somebody randomly um, on the street, and in the UK, this would have to be obviously at a safe social distance, and they yeah. said to you, what's going on with cognitive load theory? Could, could you sum it up in a sentence? Yeah, in a sentence, cognitive load theory is a collection of instructional recommendations based upon the science of how humans learn. Oh, that give us give us that one more time. Oh, that was good. That I like that. Oh, one. It's a collection of instructional recommendations based upon the science of how humans learn. Wow, that's that's absolutely fantastic. And this kind of almost you've kind of almost answered the second question there. But the the, the second question is going to be what? Why should teachers care about it? The reason I ask this is it it never fails to surprise me just how controversial um, cognitive load theory is. I, I don't know if it's the same over in Australia, but certainly, certainly over in the UK. And the kind of history that, that I certainly pick up on is that not many people are chatting about it. Then Dylan bangs out the tweet in 2017 saying it's the most important thing for, for teachers to know about it. Then everybody's obsessed with it. And then comes the backlash, as always happens with, with kind of trends where people are saying it's it's just a model it doesn't mean like how, how on earth do you measure cognitive load and so on and so forth or it's completely obvious it's what good teachers have been doing for years so um, in your opinion ollie knowing what you know now should teachers care about it and if so why should teachers care about it yeah i mean you've you've hit the nail on the head in that the 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 one sentence summary kind of alludes to it so in terms of the idea of being based upon the science of how humans learn, it's kind of based upon a set of ideas that aren't going to change. You know, cognitive load theory isn't a fad because it is built on this this uh, understanding we have of human cognitive architecture, which is built upon decades and decades of research. Uh, and so it's really a set of principles that are going to apply wherever you are. Um, in addition to that, you know, as teachers, teachers are empowered by having an understanding of learning mechanisms. It's not it's not methods so much, but it's actually an understanding mm -hmm. of the mechanisms and how things work. Um, because what an understanding of mechanisms does is it en enables us to adapt our instruction effectively, irrespective of the context in which we find ourselves, whether it's a new class, a new le year level, hopefully a new school. I guess I'll, I'll, I'll put this to the test in, over the next few weeks to see if I'm right or not. Um, but an understanding of these fundamental principles really help with that adaptive expertise. So that's the first, the first idea. And then the second idea is it just gives really concrete and practical recommendations about how the efficiency of instruction can be improved. And that's from all the effects that you've spoken about on the podcast before. Um, it's just really, really practical when, when the rubber hits the road. So that's why I think cognitive flow theory is, is useful for teachers. Is there a similar backlash, um, Ollie, um, in your kind of uh, circles that, that you mix or in the Australian um, community in general? Do, do you find there's there's a, a bit of a kind of negative take on cognitive load theory or is it all still pretty much positive? It's a good question. Um, I guess two things to that. Number one is Australia usually trails the UK by a few years in terms of educational stuff. So, you know, you had this kind of knowledge rich push that started a few years ago. Um, and we're just starting to get that now. It's kind of similar with cognitive load theory. It's really coming to the fore. Um, so I'd say that means that the backlash is also a little bit <laughs> delayed as well. Um, but in addition to that, I guess I'm in a bit of an echo chamber and generally people mm -hmm. are contacting me to ask me to talk about it. Um, and therefore, I, I generally am only chatting with people who are speaking positively about it. That being 
that being said, I had a guy Claxton on the podcast. It's coming out um, mm. the, the first of next month uh, recently, and he definitely didn't have some nice things to say about cognitive load theory. <laughs> uh, so had, we we didn't have time to go into it, but um, you know, I'm I'm really keen to hear these critiques because uh, most of what I've encountered has been positive about cognitive load theory. But if if there are people out there who have really legitimate critiques, I'm I'm really keen to hear them as well. That's fantastic. Okay, let's let's dive in a little bit deeper then. Um, maybe a bit of an obvious question, this only, so I apologise. But but what role does the, your knowledge of cognitive load theory play in your everyday teaching? So I, I know you're somebody having spoke to you multiple times in the past. Whenever you read something about kind of memory retention, it's you want you want to try it out not just with yourself but also with your students because our job is to to help our students understand and, and retain things things better. So cognitive load theory. What what are some of the kind of practical day to day things it impacts your teaching? Yeah, so again, this kind of the answer to this question is kind of at the two levels of, of principles and strategies that is quickly becoming a theme of this podcast. Um, so, you know, as teachers, we can't actually see into our students' brains, which is very unfortunate. Uh, but, but some of the ideas in cognitive load theory have helped me to get a better sense of what's happening uh, in the minds of my students than I had before. And in particular, the idea of element interactivity and starting to kind of be able to see the tasks that I set for students in in relation to the number of elements of novel information that my students are likely to encounter in that just gives me a better sense of whether tasks are likely to be overloading for them or, or manageable for them. Um, so that's the first thing. And then the practical strategies um, for classroom instruction, they're, they're all in line with the, the, the recommendations, things like the split attention effect, redundancy effect transient information effect and maybe maybe we'll um maybe i'll talk about practical because maybe i'll talk about them in more detail in relation to your next question which i i understand is going to be about teaching online because mm. because really the first part of my answer to that question is there there are few differences um there are some which i'll mention as well but there are a few there are not too many and the, the principles still apply there as well I like that you're teasing the listeners there. I like that, Ollie. Okay, well, let's let's move then to, to, to teaching online because this is obviously some, something incredibly topical at the moment, obviously, in the UK with, with schools currently in, in the close to the majority of students and, and teachers delivering lessons online. But also, um, this is something for, for listeners internationally that is, is potentially happening now or maybe happening soon or potentially could happen at some point in the future when God knows what's, what's going to happen. So... I'm very interested in in how instruction and, and teaching in general um, is the same or differs um, in terms of online. So, yeah, well, what are the implications in, in your understanding, Ollie, of cognitive load theory for, for teachers teaching um, outside of the classroom? Okay. So, firstly, whenever there's a new environment, there's there will be increased extraneous load for students, at least for a while. So when we send students into an online environment, um, that's new. They're having to deal with lots of new things, the technology, uh, whether their camera's on and off, whether they're muted or not, and all these things contribute to extraneous load. So we've got to expect that there's going to be a base base level of cognitive load there that's a little bit higher than what it usually is in the classroom that they're used to, and therefore we've got to take account for that and, and design our instruction and our tasks for them taking that into account. And what taking that into account means is probably not going to be as challenging at the outset until they have become habituated to that new learning environment. So that's the first thing. Secondly, as I mentioned just before, in the online classroom, 
the effects are really the same as in the standard classroom. So, you know, if we look at the transient information effect, for example, the idea that we shouldn't require students to hold novel information uh, in working memory when that isn't required and when that isn't used for generative processes, for example. So what that means is if a teacher is giving a presentation, maybe they're using PowerPoint, just be aware if you're requiring students to, if as you move through the slides, things that you're referring to are disappearing for the students. Mm. So an example in the book is we might be teaching students about punctuation. Um, at first, we teach them about the full stop, give a definition and example. Next slide, we teach them about a comma, give a definition and example. And the third slide, we might have an activity and we ask them to apply the idea of the full stop mm. and the comma. If, we've act, if, these, if the idea of full stop and comma are new for students, uh, and if they've we've seen them on the previous slides, but then they disappear when we ask them to do the third, the actual task, this is transient information, this is generating extraneous load. So what teachers can do about that is just take a brief summary of those uh, full stop and comma and include them on the activity slide so that students can refer to them uh, as needed. So that's one example, uh, transient information effect. Then we've got the split attention effect, which I summarise as information that must be combined should be placed together in space and time. And so, you know, you actually spoke about some of these um, in your summary of, or in your closing words after you interviewed Ohau recently, Craig. So mm. things like integrating the actual labeling of the diagram into the diagram um, can reduce load for students. And then redundancy inf information, which I, I define as don't include unnecessary information and do not replicate necessary information. Um, to, to boil that down really simply, often less is more. So, and this is especially true in an online environment, just giving students just what they need to be successful in the learning task and not including other things. As teachers, often we want to like give students lots and lots of information because we think mm -hmm. the more we give them, the more supportive we're being, but often that can actually overload them. So just keeping it simple. Um, and one other thing that is kind of specific to the online learning environment is the ability of technology to effectively enable uh, effective to enable effective use of the goal-free effect, which is something um, we can talk about a little bit more. No, another teaser. I like that. Um, I'll tell you what. I've, I've been thinking about this a lot. I, I was giving um, a talk the other day um, online, obviously, about what, what I call focusing thinking, and that encapsulates my understanding of cognitive load theory, cognitive theory of multimedia learning, and dual coding theory. And one of the things I was talking about the split attention effect and redundancy effect, and um, specifically about. Um, two massive mistakes I used to make. And that was, I'd have text on the screen, um, on the board for students to read or, or in front of them in a worksheet. And I'd be talking over the top, perhaps giving them some instructions, like make sure you read it carefully, set out your work like this. And it was really problematic for my students because they were trying to read something and also listen at the same time. Mm. Or I'd fall victim of the, um, the redundancy effect where as soon as text would appear, I'd just be reading out that text to them. Um, and again, they'd have two kind of the same audio stream coming in and so on. It was problematic. I've got a theory, Ollie, in terms of teaching online. I think teachers can fall victim of those much worse when they're teaching online than when they do face-to-face. -face. And the reason is, I don't know if you find this, but whenever I'm doing any kind of talk or a lesson or anything online, I just end up talking much more than I would do normally because I think it's because there's you can't necessarily see the reaction of your students if they've got their cameras turned off or it just feels like there's a bit of a void going on there's just complete silence and you can't pick up on any any um kind of non-verbal responses from your students because you can't necessarily see them so i just keep talking 
So like a slide will come up or something, whether it's teachers or students. And whereas in the classroom, I'd be quite comfortable giving like a period of silence for, for, for students or teachers to digest it. I'm finding myself online. I'm never shutting up. I'm giving them two seconds. And then I'm saying, read this, read this. And I'm, I'm like, I'm regressing in terms of my teaching ability by about seven years at the moment teaching online because I just can't shut up. Do, do you reckon there's anything in that, Ollie, that, that teachers are having to kind of adjust as well? And perhaps it's it's more difficult. Certainly the kind of talking over written text is, is perhaps a bit more difficult to to, to get right when teaching online or is it just me being a bit kind of weird a, a, about this yeah I think it's uh I think it's a trap and definitely one that's easy to fall into I I know you didn't didn't ask for advice then Craig but may I may I hazard a <laughs> of course um cool uh, so I just I recently had Doug Lemov on the the podcast and he just he just makes some excellent points and one of the excellent points he made that I think can apply here is one of the things that we often find ourselves as teachers saying is, um, do you get that or does that make sense or do you understand, right? And this is this is something that we might be tempted to say even more online when we can't actually see our students, right? And in, in addition to just explaining stuff more and more and more. And what mm. Doug suggests is that w- whenever we find ourselves having an inkling that we want to ask a question like, you got that or thumbs up or do you get that? Do you understand? Does that make sense? What we're actually doing is we're signaling to ourselves that that's a key time to actually check for understanding, mm-hmm. um, to actually use and you know reject self-report and actually use an explicit planned, ideally planned, explicit check for understanding to see if our students are following along. So maybe one way to circumvent this temptation to kind of talk lots uh, in our online lessons is actually to sit down prior to the lesson and think, where can I insert some more checks for understanding? It'll probably make it more engaging for the students. And it also act mm. as like a, a backstop to our talking where instead of asking those, those kind of vapid questions or just feeling like we have to fill the void, we can actually fill the void with some questions that we've planned that check for understanding and help move that learning forward. That's good. I'll take that top tip. That's very good. Because it's interesting, isn't it, Ollie? You, you talked about this kind of increased extraneous load for students. It, it's similar for teachers. I've certainly found this. And certainly it's getting a bit less now as teachers are becoming more familiar with it. But at any time you find yourself in a new environment, whether it's a new school, a new classroom, you've got, you've got to adjust. And it's it's been a massive shift for teachers trying to get their heads around the technology of teaching online. Um, as you say, the, the things that they would normally take for granted, just ask a diagnostic question in class, how on earth do you do that online? Line and so on. So it's it's a challenge for teachers as well as, as students with this with this increased extraneous load. And the message I always give is is don't be too hard on yourself. It's it's going to take time to get into into the flow of things and, and to kind of almost get back to the level of teacher that you were before this happened because you're not just having to think about teaching, learning, questioning, and so on. There's all these other things going on. It's it's tough, isn't it? Oh, yeah, couldn't agree more. And you know that definitely mirrors my experience as well. Um, I barely taught a class last year in a standard form and and so that adds adds to the anxiety as I move into a new school and we go back to face to face I feel like I haven't taught a taught a standard lesson in a whole year almost um, so yeah it's a big big challenge for all of us fantastic and um, now I'm interested in this Ollie because um, obviously you, you're not coming into writing and researching for, for this book as a complete novice yourself you've you've been thinking about cognitive load theory uh, for, for quite a few years you've spoken to Sweller and so on so I'm just interested did you change your mind about anything whilst you were writing or researching the book yeah definitely there, there are a few things so one was my understanding of what is meant by worked examples so um, I guess one of the most famous findings of cognitive load theory is that 
worked examples are effective uh, for novices. And I would peddle out that kind of claim. But what I actually found out was that what cognitive load theory meant by worked examples wasn't actually what I thought worked examples were. So as, a, as an example, um, consider the following. A teacher models two different questions that are pretty similar. Um, you know, worked examples, as we would traditionally call them, on the board, and then provides students with eight independent practice questions that are similar um, to follow on. So that's what I thought mm. would be classic worked examples. You know, I'm working my examples on the board and students sure. are doing paired problems. Actually, that is what cognitive load theory would call problem solving. So mm. what's actually there, we've got the teacher demonstration and we've got independent practice. But in cognitive load theory, worked examples are actually something that sits between um, that teacher explanation and the student independent practice. So the teacher will might demonstrate a procedure or they might ex, uh, exemplify some, some principles or something like that. But then the worked examples actually come in all the research, and you you've touched on this before with Michael Pershing especially, mm-hmm. in all the research there are actually students reading an example, doing a paired problem, reading an example, doing a paired problem, and doing that multiple through multiple iterations before they then move on to that independent practice. So I think that has some interesting implications for how we actually plan our own lessons um, and and compare or and use the, the findings from cognitive load theory to justify something that they don't necessarily support. So that's one thing. Yeah. Yeah, just just on that, Ollie, it's fascinating. To see, and you're right. I've had, I've had a couple of discussions with with Michael Pershing, um about this. Well, why why is that, Ollie? Because it, it, one of the things I love about cognitive load theories is, is, as you as you've alluded to, it's got loads of kind of practical classroom um, applications. There there are ideas I can read about split attention, and I can think, right, I'm literally going to change this for the next time I, I see my students. I can make an improvement there. I, I I kind of found something similar when I was reading the worked example approach. I just assumed that worked examples were what you know teachers assume worked examples to be is is there research into what we would traditionally call a worked example as far as you're aware where a teacher models something on the board and then students do practice it, does cognitive load theory do studies kind of touch upon that method of teaching and compare it to either students studying worked examples or just kind of doing independent problem solving or is that just a bit too tricky to measure do you think yeah no, so so what what i just described there as what we would traditionally think of as worked examples that is actually what is used as pro- the problem solving condition within oh, wow within the study yeah this, this this is why it blew my mind so much because it's like what i was doing is the thing that cognitive load theory said is not as good as the worked examples <laughs> which is the alternating approach or or a more structured fading approach um so yeah it's uh it's it's perplexing and and the challenge for us all that is interesting. And I wonder, the final one on this, just before we move on to even more things I'm confused about. Um, I w- there's a kind of long-running debate between myself and Michael Pershing about, about the best way to, to, to do this. And we both kind of like the um, worked example, your turn approach. And we also both like the notion of um, what there's the stage in my worked examples that I call narration, where kind of critical questions are asked about the worked example and students have to think about it. Like, why did I um, add a seven there? What what am I doing on this line? And so on and so forth. But we do it in completely different ways. I do what Michael called a, a rollout approach, where, as you described there, I would do this on the board. Um, 
kind of rolling it out one line at a time and then asking kind of key questions about it. Whereas Michael would do the, the complete worked example is there for students to read and they would have the kind of full picture in front of them and, and essentially they read it at their own time. Um, do you have a sense, Ollie, in, in what you've kind of come across there that one way is better than the other or is, is a kind of mixture the best way to do things or did different different ones for different contexts? you have any take on that in terms of worked examples specifically? Mm, Craig versus Michael, the ultimate show. Yeah, it's the big one. It's the big one. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, obviously, um, I can see see benefits for both. So in terms of your approach, by rolling it out, you're managing the the load that you're imposing on students mm. as you go. So it, they're unlikely to get, they're not as likely to get overloaded by that process yes. as if you just show something up straight away. Conversely, I think that actually learning to read a worked example as students would find it in a textbook is a really key skill for students to yes. learn and how they're going to learn that if we don't actually give them practice that and scaffold that. Um, something else that I particularly like about Michael's approach is the way it eases the burden on the working memory of the teacher, right? So mm. especially for a new teacher, if they, if actually modelling that mathematics for the students is likely to be something that's not automatized for them, which has definitely been the case for me when I've been teaching uh, higher level maths at year 12 for the last couple of years. Yes. It's just not automatic for me. I have to think about it. That's actually taking up quite a bit of my working memory space, which reduces my ability to sense where my students are at in understanding the example, to explain concisely. You know, I'm facing the board, so I'm looking away from them. Um, so in that context and following listening to Michael speak on your podcast, I've actually tried that. And, and in those in those instances, I've found that to, you know, really ease the burden on my own working memory as a teacher. Um, so which may even, if, if say the rollout effect, the rollout approach were to be more effective, um, period, with the additional work, additional cognitive resources freed up on, on my part, that I would, I, I get the sense that actually overcomes any deficiencies uh, in the all, all in one go approach, because I can be a better teacher. Wow. Yeah, that that's, I'd never thought of it exactly in those terms. I, I'd, I'd kind of, for me, a big advantage is like my writing's terrible, Ollie. And like, honestly, and that, that like is, is, is the definition of extraneously trying to read one of my flipping examples are absolutely yeah. t terrible. I, I really like the fact that I can pre-prepare something and make it neat, but I never thought about actually the complexities of the mathematics and I can just free up, free up all my attention to focus on reacting to the needs of my students. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I'm kind of doing a bit of a combo approach at the moment, mm -hmm. rolling them out and um, when I initially introduce an idea and then when it starts to get a bit more sophisticated, the examples then doing kind of Michael's approach with that. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Thank, thanks for thanks for your take on that, all. Um, well, what I want what I want to move on to now is is four four things that I'm still confused about or that I get asked a lot about about cognitive load theory, and I simply don't have a good answer. So what I'm hoping here, Ollie, is that you can just solve all my problems and I can just I can just wheel out the good stuff here, and um, all all my issues will be resolved. So my first one is that obviously cognitive load theory is focused a lot in terms of the limits the limitations of working memory not overloading working memory and so on and so forth but what i find fascinating when i read a lot of the studies and it's interesting that a lot of them are based on on mathematics 
mathematics seems to be quite a fertile ground for, for thinking about cognitive load theory. There never seems to be this option for, for students to write things down. So it's all like in the classic problem where um, you kind of multiply by a number, then subtracting a number, then multiply by that number again and subtracting a number. I just kept thinking, well, if they had a pen and paper, they could just write down each each line of working. What? Well, why are we trying to hold up everything in our working memories? So what role does kind of writing things down and showing you work in so you don't have to try and retain information? Well, what role does that play in terms of your understanding of cognitive load theory and specifically in terms of reducing the burden on students' working memories? Yeah, I think it plays a, a huge role. Um, like you, I, I can't actually think of that coming up in the research much. Although one place it came up was in talking about um, journaling and helping students reflect. And it was talking about how allowing students to write down their thoughts eased the burden on working memory of reflection. So that was interesting mm. in, in a similar vein. But I mean, I've actually had this experience myself throughout the writing process. So, you know, you know, you're trying to write a chapter or an article or whatever it may be, and you're collecting all these bits of information and you put them all onto a Google Doc or a Word Doc or whatever it may be. And there's like 50 different ideas and it's like, how on earth am I going to try to put these in an order that makes sense? Um, yes. It's just a huge, it's just a cognitively demanding, immensely cognitively demanding task. And so following a podcast with Oliver Caviglioli, where he talked about um, this spatialization metaphors and containers and paths and the idea that, well, it's, it's quite involved, but the idea that all, all ideas are objects Um what, what I've started to do is take those ideas, write them onto little cue cards, put those cue cards on my floor and just move them around. And so I've actually, you know, turned those big paragraphs into simple sentences, um, put group those simple sentences on the cue cards into kind of containers or small packets of five or six ideas together that are then represented by one overarching theme and then just simply uh, sequence those themes along a path or a narrative kind of structure and lo and behold, there's the chapter. And so I was actually, you know, finding the writing process to be really cognitively overloading until I worked out this method of using writing to ease the burden on my working memory after Oliver's, Oliver Caviglio's suggestions. Uh, and so even in my own experience, I've found it to be really powerful. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. And again, it's it's the most obvious um, thing in the world, but you'd always advise students, right, to, 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 to write stuff down. And that, that's why we do it, isn't it, in, in maths? There's, there's no point. Well, there's kind of two parts to this, I guess. There's no point trying to juggle everything in terms of working memory and do everything at once if you've got a pen and paper and you can kind of keep track of where you're up to by writing down your lines of working. You're less likely to make mistakes. You're less likely to encounter cognitive overload. But I guess the flip side of that is because there's a danger that you take that argument to the extreme in the sense of, well, well, students don't need to remember anything because you can always look it up and write it down. And we know, I mean, that that argument's been wheeled out many times and, and dismissed many times by the likes of Daisy Christodoulou. But there is this balance, isn't there? There's, there's, there's obviously a huge advantage to, to having facts and things automated so you can pull them into working memory and, and juggle them with new information. But also there's a huge advantage, particularly in mathematics, of, of kind of writing down the steps of the problem where you're up to. Is, is that all fair enough, Al, do you think? Yeah, yeah. And you, I think you've hit on a really good distinction there. And the way I'd pull that apart is the time period over which we are talking about the learning or the problem solving here. So if we're talking about a single instance of a student trying to solve a problem over a short time period, a few minutes or, you know, something like that, then writing out 
writing it out is going to ease the burden on their working memory in that instance because they're not trying to hold it all in working memory in one go. As soon as we start to extend the timeline to, to kind of durations that students have time to get the information into their long-term memory, suddenly the writing becomes less important and the act of actually trying to get that information stored in long-term memory, chunked and automated, um, is, it, is what's going to ease the working memory memory burden for them the next time they try to solve a similar problem. So that's, I guess, a distinction um, I'd try to draw out from from what you were saying there, which was which was great. Yeah, that's super useful. I like it. Fantastic. Right. Second thing I'm confused about, Ollie. Now, th this comes up a lot, right? So I, I really like this notion of cognitive overload. I really like this idea that working memory just gets, just gets overwhelmed. And once that point happens and proponents of cognitive overload will say that no learning takes place because some people define learning as a, as a change in long-term memory. So if you're not successfully processing the information because there's just too much going on, um, you're not going to be learning anything. Now, the problem with that is that it kind of really goes against something that I was taught a lot in my early years of teaching, that, that struggle is really good. You want students really struggling, really scratching their head, really wrestling with problems because that's, that's when learning happens. And Rob Coe speaks about how learning happens when students think hard. Hard. So this often comes up both when I'm wrestling with it myself, but also when I'm lucky enough to, to do talks and workshops about this idea that what's the difference between this really good struggle where students are thinking super hard about something and, and they're going to be learning from it versus this kind of bad struggle where it's kind of tipped over and they've, they've reached cognitive overload. Any, any thoughts on that one, Or Yeah, well, I'd say there's a couple of ways that the struggle can be unproductive. So one comes from the distinction between intrinsic and extraneous load. And I mean, we didn't talk about it before, but the way that we could characterize the fundamental recommendation of cognitive load theory, it is to reduce extraneous load and optimize intrinsic load. Uh, and what that basically means is reduce anything um, that is going to cause students to think about things that are not related to the fundamental learning that needs to take place. That's your extraneous load, and that's what we're reducing. Uh, and optimising intrinsic load means any cognitive space that is freed up by reducing those extraneous things, we should actually fill um, with intrinsic load, which is information or ideas or thinking that's related to the key uh, learning intention. So, one, one key way that students can get overloaded in, in a negative way is simply if they're, and maybe it's not even getting overloaded, but if the, the vast majority of what they're thinking about is extraneous to the core learning. And so that they might not be overloaded, they might, be, they might not even be thinking hard, or they may be thinking hard, but what they're thinking about isn't what we want them to be thinking about. They might be thinking about cutting out shapes instead of actually the relationships between the fractions that we're trying to help them to understand, for yes. example. Um, so that's one thing. But then... There are times when the actual intrinsic load um, could be too much for them. Uh, ideally, we want them to you know, be working at the limits of their capacity on intrinsic tasks, and that's probably what Rob Coe's talking about. Uh, but there are also times when they can be, the task is simply too difficult for them. Um, and so the way to ameliorate that, um, I, I got this quote of Dylan William. So when he was reviewing the book, he said that extraneous load is caused by task design so the, you know whether we split attention whether things are transient things like that but intrinsic load is actually determined by curriculum sequencing um, i would add to that it's also determined by uh, the the prior knowledge of the learner but if we just focus on the curriculum sequencing part if if students are struggling too much what that means is we've tried to introduce too much too many new ideas all in one go and we just need to to spread them out over more time so that students encounter less 
interacting elements in every any single time period. That's good. That's good. I like that. I'd say he's good for a quote, Dylan, isn't he? How he's amazing. Play? He's amazing. Yeah. If he didn't exist, I'd, I've, I've nothing to talk about. So yeah, he's he's very, very good. That's super. Fantastic, Ollie. Right. Two more things I'm struggling with. And you, you've, did you've I, touched did I, this. Did I actually answer your question, though? I, I said some stuff. I'm wondering. No, you did. Well, go, go yeah. on. You, you tell me what you think. I, I, I think you did. But go on, you, you tell me your concern there. Actually, maybe... Feel free to cut this out if you'd like to, but I'd love to see what you got out of my answer there because I'm not 100% sure what I said. I'm going to do a check for understanding, Craig. Um, well, let's do it. Let's do the check for understanding How now, do we right? know when so, someone has reached cognitive overload versus just thinking really hard? Yeah, well, I, I took the two practical things out of that, that, that obviously trying to reduce extraneous load is the key because you can have students thinking really hard, but they're thinking really hard about the wrong thing that isn't going to contribute to, to learning. And again, your classic example, as you, you said there, of kind of cutting things out. Um, instead of thinking about the maths, but also you've got the issue of, you know, poor, poorly designed PowerPoints, poorly designed worksheets, and so on, just poorly de- designed tasks, just just generally. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also the fact that you can also be thinking really hard about the right stuff, but still get overwhelmed if that task is simply too difficult, it's pitched to to um, too high a level, it's too unstructured, and so on. So I, I guess, like, when, as you said before, we can we can't look inside students' heads. We're never it'd be wonderful if we can just kind of measure everybody's working memory capacity and see where they're at we're never going to do that but if we focus on trying to primarily reduce extraneous load and then secondly just trying to use our knowledge of our students the sequencing of our schemes of work and our curriculum just to just to and our experience just to think is this task at the right level for my students once i've stripped out all the extraneous load that's that's kind of about as good as we can do as teachers that's what i took from it ollie Oh, good teamwork, Craig. Good teamwork. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Right. Oh, I want to talk about this now, this element interactivity, right? Now, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you here, and this is, I, I shouldn't be confessing this, but I'm going to. So I, I do quite a bit of talks, as I say, about focusing mm-hmm. thinking. One thing on those talks, I don't even go near is this element interactivity because I get really confused about it. Um, and the, the thing I get confused about, I, I, I like the, the notion of it. The sense that, well, my understanding anyway, that, that if you have a task or a new idea, how many how many other ideas does it connect to? Or is it a very isolated kind of idea that we can you can just teach kind of separately and so on? But my, the reason I, I, I steer clear of this is in terms of maths, I just get the sense that maths as a subject, everything's got this high element interactivity. Like all maths builds upon maths that's come before it. There's very, very few topics in maths that I can simply teach without any kind of assumption or check for understanding of of prior knowledge it, it all seems connected um, to me so just give us your understanding of this concept of element interactivity ollie and, and do you agree that maths is a topic with with high element interactivity and if so what, what are the implications of that um so i guess the thing that i'd be keen to emphasize here is that first of all element interactivity is the source of all cognitive load so whenever we talk about students getting overloaded it's because we've introduced too many elements and as we've talked about already. Um, Those elements may be extraneous to learning or they may be intrinsic to learning. Um, But more importantly, in relation to this question, what constitutes an element is not something that is fixed. Mm -hmm. What constitutes an element is in, you know, in large, large part dependent upon the prior knowledge of the learner. So, you know, if we, if a student doesn't know their times tables and we're getting them to expand brackets um, in a way that requires using their time ta- times tables, then that might be a task that's high in element interactivity. 
However, yes. if they've managed to automate their times tables, then it could be a task that's very, very low in element interactivity. And as we were talking before, we'd hope that for a teacher demonstrating that procedure, it was actually a task that chunked and automated in such a way that they barely had to think about it so they could focus on their explanation, um, what their students are doing in their classroom and things like that. So I would be careful saying that all of maths is high in element interactivity. I would say that um, all of maths has the potential to be high in element interactivity, but, but it depends uh, in, in vast part uh, upon the prior knowledge of, of the learner. And, you know, to, to build on that, like anything can be high in, in element interactivity. If I, if I say, if I use the sentence, um, you know, I just moved into a new house, that's pretty low in element interactivity for us. But for a child who's, who's still learning those words, um, that could be quite a high um, task in element interactivity, especially if we were talking about writing that for both of us. We've chunked and automated all those words and that sentence would be very, something very easy for us to either read or write. But for a student still learning how to write the letter H, even writing the letter H might in, entail three separate elements, you know, one vertical line, another vertical line and a horizontal line. So whether something is high or low in, in element interactivity, many things have the, the potential to be high, but it depends primarily on the prior knowledge of the learner. That's nice. Now that that has become really clear for me, Ollie. Now, and that that for me is a good example of how cognitive load theory can become a real practical thing. So, if you take something like split attention effect, that is something that once once you're aware of that, and that it's a bad idea to have information separated, it's a bad idea to have kind of multiple sources of information coming at students if they're presented, you know, in a, in a, in a suboptimal way and so on. That, that Once you read that research, you think, right, okay, I can improve my PowerPoints, I can improve my classroom, I can improve how I talk to students. Element interactivity for me was always something that it seemed a bit abstract. I, I couldn't get my head around it. But now I can see from that that it's it, a real practical thing there is it, it, you've just got to assess the prior knowledge of your students before you're introducing this this new task so use your, your bracket example is a brilliant one um if you list kind of the prior knowledge that students need in order to have the best opportunity to to learn this new idea of expanding brackets obviously a, a, an understanding of algebraic notation is going to come in there as you mentioned times tables and so on if you get a list of those and you for, for me ask a diagnostic question on them or some form of check for understanding if your kids are fine with them, then they've got a real good chance of, of understanding the new idea because it's going to have a relatively low element interactivity. But if if they, they get those kind of initial check for understanding questions wrong, then it's going to really reduce the chance of them, them understanding this new idea because they're going to be focusing on those those elements that 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 are that comprise this new idea, or sometimes what I would call the atoms that comprise this new idea. Is is that the kind of practical takeaway from it, Ollie, that, that you get? A hundred percent. And, and, you know, you've written about this yourself, Craig, in, in your second book, when you talked about using that strategy, write a line, leave a line. So mm. if I were to relate that to the idea of element interactivity, what you suggested was that experienced teachers often find it hard to discern the number of interacting elements that their students will encounter in a given problem. That is because they've chunked and automated uh, many of the steps required, so they simply don't see them anymore. So yes. if, I, if I recall your strategy correctly, what you suggested is that teachers who are trying to construct a worked example for students actually will write a line of that working, then leave a blank line, and this is in the planning process, not in the actual classroom, um, write a line, leave a line, write a line, leave a line, till the problem's um, completed. And then they actually go back and say, between this first line and the second line that I have written, is there actually some implicit process that I skipped over because I just didn't notice it, but that is not going to be 
implicit and automated for my students. And therefore, is there, you know, put in cognitive load terms, is there an element hidden in here that I didn't see, but that will be interacting for my students? Um, so yeah, you've written written about it yourself and, and we can bring these things together. Um, and turns out you're you're an expert in it already, Craig. Flipping, eh? that, that second book of mine's getting better the more this conversation goes on, Ollie. That's good, that. I'm, the, the next draft of it, I'm just going to subtly just paste in a bit of element interactivity and I'll, I'll have it all sorted. That's, that's fantastic, <laughs> superb. Uh, right, last one is goal-free effect. Now, I just want to give you a bit of background here, Ollie. When I, when I read the goal-free effect, when I was first encountering cognitive load theory, I thought, Wow, this is a big one. This this is really, really big. This is something I, I again as a mathematician, I can see immediately how this can be used. And the classic examples that often wheeled out in the literature is you get a geometry problem, and it's uh, the, the goal specific version of it would be work out the size of this angle, find angle x or whatever it is, and that might be kind of three or four steps away. The goal free version would be find the sizes of as many angles as you can, or even more kind of goal free. What can you work out from this diagram and so on? Now. I, I got a bit obsessed with this for about a year and I started using this and it seemed to be going down well. But I'll tell you what, what started happening, and maybe this is part of the backlash or maybe this is just an obvious kind of concern that teachers have, is that isn't this just open-ended questions? Isn't this just some kind of unstructured question, um, maybe almost like an investigation or even so far as isn't it just an inquiry, which is kind of almost the, if we're talking about novice learners, uh, giving them in like an open-ended inquiry is kind of what the, the opposite of what cognitive load theory would, would recommend to do. It's kind of the ultimate form of problem solving. So for me, this seems to be a bit of a kind of conflict going on with this goal-free effect. So what's, what's your understanding, Ollie? And, and is there anything to those concerns? Yeah, it's, it's a great question because it's it's a very similar, it's exactly the same question that I had myself. It was like, oh, I've heard that um, open-ended problems aren't meant to be good for novice learners. So what's with all this goal-free effect stuff? Um, I guess in answering this question, I'll start by talking about what the problem can be with having goals. And the problem with, with having goals is, we'll, we'll start this one with a, a metaphor that, I, that I've used a couple of times, and that's imagine you're going hiking on a mountain right and and you you go out there's two ways to there might there's probably many ways to approach this but consider the following two ways to approach it firstly you go out and you're like my goal is to get to the top of this mountain that's all i'm worried about um no matter what and so as you're walking you're not actually looking around you at all you just keep on like looking to the top of the mountain and thinking am i getting closer to the top am i getting closer to the top every time you reach a fork in the road you say you look at the top of the mountain and say which you know, which direction do I need to go to get yes. me closer to the top, et cetera, et cetera. If you were to come, so that's that's one approach. A second approach is you go for a walk and you're like, well, actually, I'm just going to pay attention to my surroundings. Like I might get to the top of the mountain, might not, not too fast. I'm just going to pay attention and, and walk around. And so you notice this little moss on this side of the tree. You notice this interesting fork in the road. On one side, there's a red flower. On the other side, there's a blue flower, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, in the first case, you get you definitely get to the top of the mountain. In the second case, you may or you may not. But then imagine that both these two people come back a week later and instead of the mountain being a nice clear day like it was the first time, suddenly there's just like mist everywhere and you can't actually see the top of the mountain anymore. Um, the question is who would be able to find their way around the mountain better? Well, nice. if, we, if we think about the first person, right, they haven't actually paid attention to their, their surroundings at all. They just looked at the top of the mountain and then got there and then like ticked the box. The other person, they've actually paid attention to, to the environment. They've actually learned the environment. And so 
even with the mist there, they can still notice that piece of moss on the side of the rock. They can still notice those two flowers. And they can, therefore, they have a better sense of the terrain. So this is one, one example. Well, this is an example of one of the ways that goals can actually reduce learning for us. And this is actually the reason why Dylan Williams says um, the cognitive load theory is the most important thing for teachers to know. That is, cognitive load theory and the goal-free effect more explicitly shows us that students can attain goals such as getting to the top of the mountain without actually learning anything in the process such as the environment of the mountain. So that's the first issue with the problem of goals. It shifts students' attention to the outcome which, you know, more scientifically we talk call means-ends analysis, um, and that shifts their focus or can shift in some instances their focus away from learning. So that's the first thing. The second issue that sometimes occurs with goals is that it can increase the number of interacting elements. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen this as yet, but on page 143 and 144 of the book, and I'll, I'll share these images with you in PDF form so you can... Um, so you can share them with your readers. Do you actually have a copy of the book there? I have, yes. Okay, so if you go to page 143 and 144, I've actually drawn a diagram of the number of interacting elements that a student is going to encounter. This is, you know, a hypothesis, as we've talked about, num number of interacting elements always depends upon the student's prior knowledge. But for an average student attempting this question, um, doing a goal-free version of the find the angles in this triangle versus um, a goal-specific version. And as you can see, for a student who's just told, find the angles in this triangle, um, in this particular diagram, there are only five interacting elements. One is I have side A and the first angle. Then there's two more. That's I could use sine or I could use cosine. And then the fourth is using sine would give me side B and using cosine would give me side C. So that's just... That's the goal, the goal-free version. But the goal-specific version, students have to think about many more things. So they still think about, I have side A and the first angle. They still think about, I could use sine, that would give me side B, and I could use cos, that would give me side 5C. So we've got those five original um, elements, but now we've actually introduced new ones, which are, how far away am I currently from getting side E, which is the goal? And then they have to also ask, if I did calculate side B, would that get me closer to side E? Or if I calculated side C, would that get me closer to side E? So actually introducing a goal can introduce or increase the number of elements that students encounter. So before I go any further, did you want to say anything about that? No, just the, well, two two things, just, just very, very positive things. I, I love the mountain analogy. That's really, really clear. And I, I, I like, I really, really like this, um, yeah, this this diagram because it, again, I I love a visual summary of, of of anything, and I think this this makes it really really clear. I, I don't think I've explained this particularly well um in the past. I because I'll tell you what I'll tell you where I go wrong, golly. It's uh, sometimes I try and make the distinction between um kind of goals. Well, I I, I even get this muddled up. I'll be perfectly honest with you. I don't. So some people kind of make the distinction between kind of a forward thinking strategy and a backward thinking strategy but I always get mixed up which one's which which is the kind of goal specific one and which is the goal free one and I often tell the I often I often say say this a similar story to you but not not as eloquently as you do about about a student on a kind of goal free version where they they kind of go to go to step one but then they can kind of pause and reflect on where they are in step one learn from it and then they move to another step step two and they can pause and reflect and so on but all the time i'm saying this i keep thinking well 
you can kind of do that in the goal specific version like if if you kind of get to step one and then you reflect how far am i which way do i need to go but i i guess it's just a bit more kind of overwhelming there's a bit more for the students to to, to kind of take in in the goal specific version because as your diagram clearly shows you've got these additional questions crucially the one i really like there is will working out this get me anywhere closer to my goal whereas that question just completely removed if you don't know what the goal is i don't know if that randomly made any sense at all but to, to, to summarize yeah it's made it a lot clearer for me yeah totally totally that makes that that's a that's i really like your step example as well and like you said a student who's irrespective of how they've got to step one whether it's goal free or goal specific, in both cases, they can reflect um, and think about what happened. But, you know, for the student who's goal specific, the chances, if they're trying to get to the top of the staircase, the chances of them turning around and going, oh, I wonder how I got to step one, are very, very low. They're just still looking at the top yes. going, how do I get closer again? And so yes. that, that reduces that learning. So, so yeah, they're the two issues or the two things that generate um, the issue that sometimes comes with goals, the fact that attention is constantly focused on the outcome and therefore not on the learning, and the fact that it generates increased uh, number of interacting elements. But now we come to the actual question you asked, which is what's the difference between open-ended questions uh, and the goal-free effect? And it took me a long time, Craig, to actually work this out. I was toiling through the research, I was reading so much. But as I read more and more studies, I started to see some commonalities emerge. And basically, I managed to identify that there were three preconditions for a goal-free uh, problem to actually be effective. The first is restricted actions. So in every single one of the goal-free studies where it's been shown to be successful, the students can only do a number of actions, right? Um, so for example, in one study, students were trying to control the populations of a, num a number of marine animals. They had crabs, sea bass, um, prawns and lobsters, I think it was. Um, and they had to change, they could only change four things. They could only ch change um, temp water temperature, salinity, current, uh, and something else, which I've forgotten, right? That's all they could do. And so in this environment, with only a restricted number of actions, what students can actually do is basically they don't get lost in the maze you yes. know it's, it's it's like the 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 number of paths on the mountain isn't so great that they're just going to get lost and they've actually got enough time to explore this restricted range uh, another example here is like if students play a computer game um you know you're going to try to fo follow that path but then it just kind of stops and you're kind of walking on the spot it's because there's a restricted range um and students can only explore in this restricted range and that means they don't get too confused so that's the first first idea, restricted actions. Um, and that, that makes it really hard to do this in a non-digital environment because if you just say calculate all the things you can, you know, students theoretically, they probably wouldn't do it, but they could start measuring the width of the A4 sheet of paper. You know, they could yes. start calculating the volume of the room that you're in. But yeah, that's it. They're extreme examples. But but there's, there's so much stuff that students can do that you wouldn't expect them to do that can just end up being extraneous. So that's the first thing, restricted actions. The next idea is rapid feedback. So if students do something when they're trying, when they're in like a more of an open learning environment, for them to actually understand the relationship between what they do and what happens, those two things have to have happen relatively uh, temporally close together. And this is another example of the split attention effect. Um, you know, if students do something and the result of that is 10 minutes later, they're never going to understand the connection between those two yes. things. So again, this is why it's often done 
in a digital environment. If we go back to that example of uh, changing temperature salinity and things like that and seeing the impacts on the populations of the animals, that's done in, in a digital simulation. So as soon as students change the salinity, they can see what dies and, and what you know grows more. Whereas if you did it in real life, it would take quite a long time for that yes. to happen and we, we wouldn't see it. So that's the next thing. We need to have rapid feedback. And third, and this is one of the most important ones, students must have reliable results. So when they take an action, the thing that's supposed to happen has to happen. Um, so for example, so a close reading of the geometry study, um, when you know it's like find as many things as, as you can, find as many angles or whatever as you can, a close reading of that actually reveals that for every single student doing that, there was a researcher sitting next to them. And if the student uh, carried out a mathematical process incorrectly, you know, they used sine and they did um, yes. adjacent over hypotenuse instead of opposite over hypotenuse. I think that's right. Um, <laughs> interacting elements, I'm thinking about something else. But if they do that, if they carry it out incorrectly, um, the researcher would actually say, you did that wrong. And so the students could only do things, um, they could only get results that were reliable with the actual actions they take. And if if you, if a student doesn't have the researcher next to them saying, you did that wrong, they can actually just calculate as many things as they want, but every, every process that they do is actually incorrect and therefore they're not going to learn anything from it at all. So to summarise, the difference between effective goal-free effect instruction and open-ended questions come from restricted actions, rapid feedback, and reliable results. Nice, nice. And I'll tell you what I like about that as well. It's I've experimented loads over the last few years with the goal-free effect. And again, I wasn't aware of these, these kind of three criteria, but this is a really useful way to frame it now. I, I've often found that exam questions make really good, like goal-specific exam questions, when adapted, make really good goal-free questions because as long as you're careful um, with with the kind of removing the goal-specific um, nature of them, you don't just kind of just chop off the question and, and leave it so open-ended. As long as you're careful with it, exam questions are often really written in a way where the, um, the the domain that the students can kind of go down the different paths is relatively restricted. They seem to be quite nice. Whereas, as you say, if you come, well, I've certainly found this, if you come up with a question yourself and it's so open-ended that the kids can go off in so many different directions, it, it's really problematic. So I, I don't know if you found the same, Ollie, but I, I find adapting exam papers can give you quite a nice set of, of goal-free problems as opposed to just trying to think of them myself. I, I don't know if that matches your experience at all. Yeah, look, if I'm honest, I can't say I have ever felt like a goal-free thing I've attempted in the classroom has been a raging success. It's oh, just it's just really it's really hard to do. Um one thing I have started to do more when I do goal-free stuff, um and this is because of reading the research and realizing that the vast majority of these studies are car carried out um in digital learning environments is I've started to do it more in my physics class with simulators. And again, simulators are fantastic because they have restricted actions. Students can't just yes. do anything. They can only move at so many levers. Rapid feedback, they get the ideas straight away and reliable results. You know, sometimes if you've got a broken piece of lab equipment, students can come to, you know, erroneous conclusions, but that just doesn't happen in a simulation because it always works every time. So that was, you know, earlier I alluded, to, I hinted at the fact that maybe goal-free is better related to online learning. And I would encourage teachers, if they want to play with the goal-free effect, um, to have a goal while we're doing the online learning thing because there's so many great simulations out there which are actually quite well suited um, to a goal-free approach. That being said, though, as I confessed, even though I've tried that, I don't feel like it's been a raging success. So I still uh, need to refine that myself as well. 
That's interesting. I guess in terms of, of maths, things like Desmos or the Desmos activities or kind of pre-built JoJo activities, they're kind of a similar thing in terms of the simulation. There's, there's, there's not, again, you have this kind of restricted, uh, restricted amount of things that students can do, but they're also getting that rapid feedback there because, again, it's not going to plot the wrong graph for you. If you type in Y equals X, it's going to draw you Y equals X and so on. So, yeah, I think that's just really interesting that this that this online environment might be the time to to try out the goal free. I like that. Yeah, really. yeah. And, and you're right. Desmos is Desmos. I haven't played with Joe Yuba much, but Desmos is absolutely fantastic for this. Fantastic. Superb. Right. Um, Ollie, just before we, we kind of move on to the final thing I want to talk to you about, which is your podcast, is there anything else you want to say um, about your book or anything that you'd uh, recommend that readers check out in particular uh, or anything, a- anything else you want to add about your, your wonderful book? I don't know. I don't know, Craig. Um, <laughs> did you change your mind about anything after reading any of it? Yeah, I, I, I did. It was, again, the, the element interactivity was was a big part of it. I've been, Ollie, I cannot say, I've been wrestling with that for years. And it's one of those things I'm embarrassed to say because I just couldn't, I couldn't get my head around it. I could not get my head around it. But the combination of your book and then having this conversation now has, has, has really, really helped me. Um, and also, again, this I think you explain the goal-free effect much clearer than I've seen it explained before. But now, again, you've just given me another little breakthrough there that, that yeah perhaps it is more suited to particularly with that that rapid feedback that's very difficult to to get in a classroom if you've got 30 students and they're all working on something without a specific goal unless you're kind of running around and like looking at everybody's work all the time and you're absolutely knackered it's very difficult to, to tell if students are going off in the wrong direction making mistakes and so on and so forth whereas yeah i never made that connection that actually if they've got a piece of software that that is almost going to stop them going wrong but still give them that kind of freedom and creativity to to kind of take their own routes that that that's going to be really well suited to the goal free effect so yeah i yeah i really really like that look i'm a big big fan of the book i'm, I'm just jealous that you again that you can write so concisely that you can take such a large body of work whittle it down into the kind of key things but also make it really practical as well so yeah i'm i'm, I'm a big fan of it ollie thanks craig it's nice of you to say and as you know your work is uh inspired and definitely educated me a lot over the years so um it's it's an honor to be able to return the favor in some small way that's very kind very kind right mate right well let's move on to your your podcast now (laughs) we're just being nice to each other now so let, let me let me lower the tone a little bit here it's really interesting right like whenever i first started the podcast anytime a new podcast came along about education i was really annoyed because i thought look i'm doing this i don't need anybody else i don't need anybody else doing this Yours popped up, and I thought for a while I thought I don't want to listen to this. I don't. But then you had some really interesting guests, and I I always remember. I don't know whether it was Adrian Simpson or someone else. There was one episode that fairly early on that really, really hooked me in, and I thought, wow, this. uh, It was the Andrew Martin one. You referenced it quite. Yes, Andrew Martin. That's exactly the one, and I thought, whoa, this is this is a good this a good podcast. So now I I tolerate your existence now, Ollie. Like I won't say I'm happy about it that you're bombing around with this this podcast where you managed to go really in depth with some absolutely fanta- fantastic guests but i i tolerate I'm, I'm over the fact that your podcast um exists and it's a w- wonderful podcast for, for for those people who haven't haven't listened to it i think you made a smart decision to kind of do it uh one, once a month it means that you can put a lot into into those episodes and i know you do a hell of a lot of research and you, your questions absolutely fantastic so for um for people who haven't come across uh your your e-triple-r podcast well, again, just like cognitive load theory, I ask you to sum it up in a sentence. How would you sell the dream of your podcast to people who haven't listened to it? What, what are you trying to do with it? 
Sure, happy to do that. But first, before that, I have to uh, send a counter blow back to you. <laughs> Um, I was was very similar when I found about your podcast, actually, Craig, because um, I actually created the ERRR because I found that there wasn't, and there were a lot of education podcasts out there already, um, but I didn't find that there was one that went into the level of depth that I wanted. I found that they would often be, you know, like a little half an hour podcast that talked about some strategies, but they really didn't have that substance that I was really, really hungry for. And so that's actually why I created the ERRR podcast. It was because I wanted to have access to these researchers, these authors, these teachers around the world who I knew had really deep ideas, but who I felt were being hampered by like the limit of a 30 minute time slot or something like yes. that. Um, and so I created it. And then I came across yours in your three hour episodes with the Bjork and <laughs> Dylan William and things like that. And I thought, oh, this guy's, bad. but then again, of course, I listened to it and I actually came came to really love your work. So um, I guess that's one way of, uh, of striking back at you, but also <laughs> of um, talking a little bit about the ERRR. So again, like you, long form uh, podcast, we, we go really deep. So that every, pretty much every episode is based around a book. Um, yes. And I try to I, I try to draw out themes over time. But I, I think something else that I really try to do is, as well as being deep, I try to keep the podcast broad and balanced. So I purposefully seek out people whose theories and ideas don't necessarily mesh with my current understanding of education. Um, and I, I have them on as a way to challenge myself and hopefully in some ways challenge them as well um, and to really crack education open because I think, you know, things get so partisan in education, especially recently, yes. and we all know about the Twitter debates. And But actually when you sit down with someone, instead of just having a Twitter argument, with them, when you actually sit down with them, you know, I like to have my camera on, you've you've limited me to audio on the I'm very unhappy about that. But when you sit down with someone, you can see their face. And then especially when you ask them, as you do, a little bit about their backstory and find out who they are, where they've come from, and the kind of life experiences that have shaped them up to this point, it makes it very hard to kind of blanket dismiss what they're saying. And it really encourages you to go deep and find the value um, for you or in 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 their message um so that's something else that i try to do with the podcast be broad and balanced and really bring in a diversity of voices yeah it's, it's interesting i did uh, i took a little break from my podcast i reached my five-year anniversary in uh, december just gone december 2020 and i just wrote a, a thread of tweets just about kind of 10 things that i've I've kind of learned and been reflecting on over over the last five years. And that's exactly it. Well, one of them was that, I can't remember exactly how I phrased it, but something along the lines of like nuance can be lost in a 140 character tweet or 280 or whatever mm-hmm. it is these days, but it's very hard to lose that nuance over a three hour conversation. And mm-hmm. you can't, you, as you say, you always get to the bottom of exactly why people think the way they do. And, and the, the thing I always come away with, with is that, Every single person we speak to, Ali, their, their sole goal is to improve the learning of, of students, If whether they're a teacher, whether they're a researcher, whatever it is. That, that's all everybody wants to do. And it's just people have different views on, on how to get there. But we've all got that shared common goal. And once we establish that, mm. then we can have a really informed debate about it. And it's, mm. yeah, I, they're, they're, they're my, I don't know if it's the same for you, but I, I love those episodes where somebody comes on who i know thinks differently to me and we can try and get to the bottom of how each other thinks not necessarily reach a shared kind of understanding at the end of it but at least sorry not a kind of reach consensus but at least understand each other's point of view and i I love those episodes whereas 
I really enjoy where I get on somebody who I know thinks the same as about me, but knows a lot more about it than me. I love those episodes as well, but I, I love a bit of an argument um, on that. I had a great one uh, with the, the end of this Loughborough research series. I, I interviewed Dave Hewitt and it's one of my favorite ever interviews. It came at the end. I did, I'd done five interviews that day. I was absolutely knackered, but it was brilliant to speak to somebody who just had a completely different view on how to teach mathematics, but whose ultimate goal was exactly the same as mine. Yeah, did you like you you like those challenging episodes too? Do you, Ali? One hundred percent. It's really great, and I I think I've got I think I've got better at being open over time because yes. you know, like I actually I found myself more like planning my counter arguments um, in the early days, uh, but yes. but I've I've I think I've just through having so many positive experiences in those episodes, I've I've learned more to take a curious and inquisitive mindset, and it's it's really valuable. Um, but why do you do that to yourself, mate? Five episodes in one day. What, what do you? Uh, what do you think? Well, I did I did five on the Friday, five on the Monday. My wife was like, "What the hell are you thinking?" I just thought I was batching. It's classic Tim Ferriss. I thought I'd just batch it all together, and it'll be brilliant. But they were honestly, I couldn't even speak by the end of it, let let alone think. But yeah, I got, I got through it. It was a good idea at the time. I will never be doing it. Uh, never be doing it again. Uh, right. So, all right, Ollie. This is a, a terrible question, but I just thought it'd be useful because I, I think I think around about four years or so, your your podcast has, has been going. Correct me if I'm wrong. But I wonder now might be a, a good time just to reflect on just some of the, some of the big things that you've learned from your guests over the years. Perhaps as a way to introduce some of my listeners who may not be overly familiar with yours. Um, just to hook them in a little bit. So, I mean, I asked you for five key things, but however you want to take this, what are some of the big things you've learned from your guests over the years, Ollie? Sure. Well, the the main the the first thing that comes to mind when you ask that question is is a theme that's that's emerged, and that's this kind of alludes to what you were just talking about. That then, it, and it's that whenever we talk about education, we need to start with purpose, right? You can't actually talk about what works in education without talking about what works for what so you know yes. we could say cognitive load theory works but like that's a pretty vapid statement we can what we can say is cognitive load theory is an effective way of improving the efficiency of instruction but if that's not your goal then cognitive load theory isn't isn't your hammer right so yeah the, the first question i start every episode with is what do you believe should be the purpose of school-based education and that just frames everything um, that people say, people, everything they say in the podcast from then on. Um, and I've found in, since I've started asking that question, which I started about, you know, at the two year mark or so, like a, the, it just cracks every podcast open and helps me to un, better understand um, where, where the guest is coming from. And it actually, you know, cause I've got, I've got some views, I've, I've got some assumptions that have changed over time about what education is for. And if people are explaining something and I'm assuming they're trying to get students to be better at what I think students should be getting better at, but they're actually talking about something completely different. We just butt, we butt, butt heads no matter what. So that's the first and potentially the most important lesson. We really need to start with the purpose. Um, feel free to butt in any time and, and add anything. Otherwise, I'll just charge through this list. Um, no, I'm just thinking I might start asking that question myself, but I'm wondering how I can ask it in a way that doesn't look like I've blatantly just taken it from you. So I'll, I'll be I'll be thinking about that, Ollie. But that's that's a great question. That really, that's really right, man. I'll, I'll accept a royalty for each each time you <laughs> ask it, and um, that'll be fine. Um, no, um, the second thing is mechanisms. Teaching is about mechanisms, and understanding mechanisms and not methods is what empowers teachers 
um, to have that, that adaptive expertise that we were talking about before. So as you know, as we mentioned before, and I, I did emphasize this before, so I probably don't have to go into it that much now, but so much of discussion around teaching is talking about teaching methods. But really, if we can understand how something works, it empowers us to adapt it effectively in a new environment. So for example, you know, that goal-free thing before, if, if we were to talk about goal-free and I was to say, oh, you know, well, what you can do one really effective method is that you can um, give students a triangle, give them one angle and say, instead of saying, find this angle, say, find as much stuff as you can. Let's just talk about methods. It, it might work in some instances, but if we actually go to the level of mechanisms and understand that students need restricted actions, rapid feedback and reliable results, then teachers can take that applied in any subject, any environment, because they know the prerequisites uh, and how that thing works. So, you know, un- that idea that mechanisms are important has also changed the nature of the questions that I ask guests uh, and the way that I interrogate reading research papers as well. And it's something that I encourage teachers to keep at the back of their mind whenever they're at a PD or listening to a podcast or reading a book, what is the mechanism behind this? How does it actually work at a fundamental level? I like it. I like it. I like it. And again, just on, on my kind of real basic level, that's why I'm always fascinated to tease out the kind of practicalities. Like people will say things when I interview them or just speak to teachers generally, like I, I check for understanding or I'll, I'll always make sure I, I break down, I, I break down something complex into, into chunks and so on. But I always want to know how, like literally, what does that look like? What are you doing? What are the students doing? How do you know it works? Cause that's the thing. Like, a lot of the things we talk about, everybody knows, well, not everybody, but a lot of people know it's a, it's a good idea to, to provide retrieval opportunities. It's a good idea to minimize extraneous load. But, but what does that actually look like when you've got a year nine class on a Friday afternoon or you're teaching online and you're struggling with Zoom or whatever it is? What does that actually look like? What are the practicalities? And that for me is, is it's the most important bit to, to, to get to. Yeah, I really like that, Ollie. That's, that's a great lesson. Mm, that's right. And another, another way to think about that is what are the active ingredients that have to be present? Whereas if, yes. if they were taken out, it wouldn't work. And, and another way to think about it is what are the boundary conditions for this? You know, how far can we push it um, and morph it whilst still keeping it effective? So, so there's, there's nice. two frames on that. So number three, this relates a lot back to number one, which is the purpose. But this is the important of in, importance of interrogating the metrics um, that are being used to justify education research. So, met- metrics are kind of the operate operization operate. I can usually say this word. <laughs> Operationalization. I'm, I'm keeping that in all That's gonna be the trail podcast trail. That's gonna yeah, be mate. I've just like I've just absolutely cooked it. Operationalization. I tried to use a big word, absolutely cocked it up, look like an idiot. That's great. <laughs> Culture of error. Let's keep building it in the podcast. Love it, Craig. Metrics are the operation. What's this? Okay. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's probably a stupid word to use anyway, so let's just use something else. Metrics are the way that we can help the purposes of education be manifest in the world and we can get a good sense of whether we are achieving our purposes or not. There's another way of saying it. Um, So if we start with purpose, you know, students learn more. (laughs) That's that's hilarious. Um, If we start with purpose, you know, we want our students to learn more. That's too vague. Um, we actually need to say more of what and how are we going to measure that? How are we going to be aware of it? And, you know, 
this has come out through several guests. So, for example, Adrian Simpson, he talked about range restriction. Um, so range restriction is how we measure things and how effect sizes can be influenced by changing the number of people, students in a sample, uh, and more importantly, by changing the diversity of students in a sample. So if we restrict the range and the way that we measure that, that can actually change what looks effective or not. Uh, another way that metrics are really important is the idea of whether a metric or a measurement or a test or, or something like that is proximal or distal. So something is proximal if it's, for example, designed by the experiment experimenter. So the experimenter knows exactly what they're trying to teach. They design a test that really targets that. And lo and behold, they get a really high effect size. Whereas if we were to take a more distal um, metric, such as a standardized test, which actually isn't designed to measure um, exactly what the teacher is teaching, it's less likely to show a high effect size. But then also there's other things, and this came through, came out through my episode with Jung Zhao. Um, there's things that we don't measure that also get affected whenever we do anything. So this could be the beliefs of the students, the habits of the students, um, or anything like that. And these can often be the unintended side effects that occur in, in education. So, you know, I would hazard a guess that if we use worked examples to teach every procedure for, for a group of students, right from K to 12, uh, and we don't give them any opportunities to do, um, you know, to actually struggle. You talked about productive failure um, in your episode with Oh How. If we don't actually give them opportunities to have, to struggle with problems, you know, maybe they won't actually develop the ability to do that in, in a productive way. So there are these side effects, even though we might be pushing for one thing, um, there, there are unintended side effects. So that's metrics. I probably could have been more concise on point three, but uh that's okay. Um, just, on, just, on, just on that, Ollie, just, just really quickly on this, and this is a, a tiny tangent, and feel free not, not, to, not to answer this if you don't want. One of my favourite double bill episodes that you did was all about effect sizes. I thought oh. it was an absolutely brilliantly handled because you had, you had both sides of the debate on there, and you had, you had John Hattie on there as well. Uh, having listened to those and, uh, and having obviously researched them and so on and so forth and, and having now done the cognitive load theory book and de delved more into research, where do you stand on effect sizes now? And the, the reason I asked this, Ollie, is I interviewed as part of this Loughborough series, I interviewed Matthew Inglis and we talked about prob problems with effect sizes uh, there and some of the um, EF uh, findings that, that, that are very big over here at the moment. Uh, where do you stand on effect sizes, Ollie? Are you, are you a skeptic of them? Do you, do you think they have a place? Um, there's an email sitting in my inbox right now from Dylan William giving a good answer to this, which I haven't read yet. So I'm now wishing that I read that so I could sound as smart as Dylan William. But I did actually, that was, that was, you're right. That was, that was probably the two episodes that really got the po podcast onto a wider stage and really increased the listenership because I had Adrian Simpson on critiquing the effect size. Then I had John Hattie on art was defending the effect size. And it was this, this big, this punch on. Um, like the punch on between the ERRR and the Mr. Barton Maths podcast, <laughs> um, and it was just it was just so great. Um, I actually we can put this in the show notes, for listeners. But I actually wrote a summary of my views on effect sizes following that, and that view hasn't changed much. Um, in a nutshell, I think that effect sizes are a category error, which means, in my understanding, the things that they measure are depend depends so much on factors other than the core learning that's taking place that it, sorry, comparing effect sizes is a category error, should I say. Um, 
because what what changes effect size it depends so much on things that are other than the just the core learning that's taking place that yes. you know it's really folly to try to build a, a ranking table or something like that based upon solely effect sizes um i think there's lots of other things we could do like best evidence synthesis and things like that actually looking through studies again like it's all about pulling out the mechanisms but if someone wants to quote an effect size and then tell me about the mechanism as well um and then also tell me about the way it was measured because again like i was talking about before with those metrics if it's a if it's an experimental design test, you expect a higher effect size than if you're using standardized tests or something like that. Um, but if we want to go through all those things, then I think you know using effect sizes can be useful. Uh, but other than that, there's something that gives a false sense of security. They're also yes. something that teachers find it really easy to use to back things up, but they're actually they're they're not they're not the right thing to be using. Uh, for that when again the focus wants to be on mechanisms so um handle with care perfect perfect okay fantastic uh what's number four then of the things you've learned Tom? number four is basically everything's a curriculum um so this is this is something that's taken me a long time to realize but you know we th we think about cur a curriculum traditionally as like if we want students to learn this mathematics we need to systematically plan out what they're going to learn, scope it, scope it out, sequence it out, think about where they, we're trying to get them to at the end and incrementally uh, support them to get, to get to that final point. The trap that I've fallen into for many, many years is only applying that to academic learning when, in fact, everything that we do needs to be a curriculum. If we want, you know, the key lesson from um, Tom Bennett's recent book, Running the Room, is that behaviour management is a curriculum. You know, you don't just tell students once and expect it to stick in. You actually have to plan it out. You know, what's the routine going to be? I'm going to explicitly teach it. I'm going to um, check for understanding. Then I'm going to reinforce it and revisit that routine over time because otherwise students forget it like they do with anything. Um, it's the same with CPD. You know, if we want teachers to actually remember things, turn them into classroom practice, sustainable practice, we actually need to develop it into a curriculum where we hit the same ideas over and over again, different contexts, give, give the teachers practice and things like that um, and more recently I've been thinking about learning skills developing or learning dispositions as Guy Claxton would call them developing independent learner independence and things like that again you know if we give just give students a question to struggle with once and expect them to be able to struggle with it productively that's not going to work actually you have to break it down into the atoms as you would say Craig uh, sequence them build them up uh, so everything is a curriculum and that's just something that always needs to be checked whenever we're trying to uh, influence change within a school that's lovely that that's it's, it's interesting that they be uh, the behavior side of that I, I wrote a little bit about this uh, in in my second book but i've been thinking a, a lot about this like uh, st uh, low stakes quizzes and, and starters are very very popular for a means of of getting students to retrieve information and we know from bjork's work every time we retrieve we boost the storage strength and retrieval strength of those memories but very very rarely if ever does a does a starter or a low stakes quiz contain something that's not focused on the the kind of content of the subject you never get any kind of behavior routine certainly not in my low stakes quizzes or any kind of cultural thing or, or basically anything that you want students to remember has got to be you've got to treat it in the same way as anything you want them to remember kind of subject specific and that's what i've been experimenting with a little bit just widening the scope of things that i challenge my students to retrieve in terms of low stakes quizzes and starters and so on and it's it's fascinating because you're right like we seem to sometimes treat 
non-subject specific things completely different and think that we can just say them once or rehearse them once and they'll be remembered but but they won't be and that's yeah i've never quite phrased it in that way that everything's a curriculum but i think that's a really useful way of of saying it that's lovely that ollie i like that one what's one thing you've been um trying you said you've been broadening what you've been getting students to retrieve and things like that what's one thing i'm really curious yeah so well well i'll give you i'll give you a subject specific one and then i'll give you a a non-subject specific one so one thing, like I, I'm, I always get obsessed with things, things, the things that I've uh, have not not done in the past. As soon as I then think, actually, that's a good idea, I just I just go mental with them. So etymology was something I was really getting into uh, about a year ago, mm. and the the problem with that is that it's it's it's, it's a really good way to provide like a hook um, into into like a, a new subject, a new concept. Let's dive into where the word comes from and its its related roots, and often there's a really interesting story behind where it comes from and so on. But that's all well and good but that's interesting in the moment but then if you never revisit that again it just gets forgotten and then all the benefits of making these links between you know the related words and so on and so forth they just go so when you when you use etymology to to introduce a key concept just a week later or two weeks later just pop that in all those six quiz question eight um what what's the etymology of the word polygon or some something like that and it's just I mean, for listeners, that'll be the most obvious thing in the world. But for me, it wasn't. Low stakes quizzes were all about like the mathematics, like remembering how to how to how do you add these two fractions together and so on. But if there's something that I think is valuable for students to remember, I have to schedule in retrieval opportunities for it. And it's the same thing for like Bruno Reddy on one of my first ever interviews um, on the podcast talked about the importance of routines, how before he starts teaching mathematics, he wants his students, he wants to have introduced his students the routine for how they hand books out or how they set the workout, how they ask questions in class. Now, I completely agree with that. But the problem with that, with all experience, is you, you get students really good at that at the start of September, which is the start of our academic year by october if you don't revisit it things things get forgotten things get lapsed so bang that in a low stakes quiz what are the three things we do when we want to ask a question in mathematics so it's just this notion of experimenting with non-subject specific things or different subject specific things in these retrieval opportunities and it's this mantra i have in my head now that if it's worth my students remembering if i want my students to remember it i have to schedule in retrieval opportunities for it i don't know if that makes sense yeah love it couldn't agree more uh, right, all number five. Then, what's 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 the last last kind of one you're going to share with us here? Uh, this last one is just um, in the words of Ben Goldacre. I think you'll find it a bit more complicated than that. Just <laughs> simply, simply that you know, whenever we think we understand something in education, usually it's it's a bit bit more intricate, a bit more complicated. There are a few more factors that influence influence it. Um, and actually, I heard a um, really good Econ Talk podcast the other day. I think it was Michael Blastlands. He said it was definitely Blastlands. Um, it was called the uh, called the Hidden Half, and it was it's a dissection of all these things that we see uh, these phenomena around the world and the things that we think explain them. Um, but actually, the fact that there's usually at least half of the factors that influence them we've often just not even been aware of um and so we think we know you know it's nature or nurture but maybe there's all you know 50 percent of the variation comes from other things as well and so that's one example of how it's often a little bit uh, more example than a little bit more complicated uh, than we think but yeah I, I just constantly find this whenever i research anything from cognitive load theory to inquiry-based instruction um and it constantly somehow surprises me but it's also what keeps things interesting 
Fantastic, fantastic. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll best move on to wrap things up because my little boy Isaac is trying to get in, get in the recording studio here to make his podcast debut. So um, I bet best, best start to wrap things up before he, take, he takes over the show. Uh, with a final question for you, Ollie, um, about your podcast. And honestly, like when I see your kind of uh, role of guests that you've had on the show, um, I, I get really jealous uh, because, again, you, you, you get you get the absolutely great guests, but then you get them for a real long period of time. And, and that's something that is, I've certainly found easier over the years. And uh, it was when I first had Dylan William on the show that really changed this because Dylan was on for a good length of time the first time he came on the show. So then when I could approach people like Daisy Christodoulou and Doug Lamarve and the Bjorks, I can say, look, not just that Dylan's been on, but Dylan wasn't just on for a 20 minute soundbite. This was, you know, we, we went deep. It's as you say, to give, give time for you to express your, your ideas and so on. And for a lot of people that, that was unusual. Like the fact to, to sit down for two and a half hours um, was, was really alien to them. And it's only once you see other people who've done that, and it seems to have gone down well, that people are, seem to be more accommodating to that. But all of that is just waffle to, to ask you what, what, who, who's your dream guest, Ollie? Cause you, you've had them all on, you've had, you've had Dan Willingham on who, who would be my number one uh, dream guest and i'm hoping to maybe get him on whenever he re- releases version two of uh, why don't students like school but who would be your dream guest ollie is there anyone left on the list that you really really want to get it's it's interesting you mentioned dan because i only managed to get him for an hour he was one of the only guests who was yes. like you yes. gotta go now ollie sorry mate <laughs> <laughs> so yeah yeah i only managed to get him for a but for, for me the dream guests um as 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 you said I feel like I have been lucky in getting most people that I've wanted. Um, dream guests are probably people who I haven't even heard of yet, but there's definitely yes. some people I'd love to have on, but who are unfortunately no longer with us. So people like Graham Nuttall, you know, Barack yes. Rosenstein, Lev Vygotsky, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, these people who are, you know, legends in education, but I'm never going to have them on the YouTube podcast. So that would be my dream guess and uh, dream in the original sense of the word. Nice. Well, if technology advances, maybe there'll be some way of uh, bringing them back maybe for, for an interview at some point. That's a scary, scary thought. Right. Oh, as always, this has been an absolute pleasure. I, I told you off mic that we'll look to do around about an hour. We've done one hour 40. It always happens on the show, but it, it always it always happens when I have interesting guests, basically, and you, you fit the bill perfectly for that. Your book is absolutely wonderful. Um, again, your podcast, I'm, I'm jealous of it for a really good reason. It's an absolutely riveting, riveting listen um, all the time. I learn so much for it so thank you for the book ollie thank you for your podcast and thank you for giving up your time to speak to us today it's as always it's been an absolute pleasure mate thanks craig it's been yeah it's been super fun and um thanks for providing me an opportunity to cock up the pronunciation of operationalization <laughs> and i look like an that's, that's, great. <laughs> that's been the highlight and there's no way that's being cut out that's Love super. It. Love it. <laughs> thanks craig So there you have it. There was my interview with Ollie Lovell. What a great guest he is. He's a lovely guy as well. Um, absolute pleasure to speak to him. Um, and he's welcome on the show anytime. It's just annoying he's got his own podcast that keeps getting loads of really good guests on. But anyway, we'll move on from that. Right, uh, just a few takeaways. Uh, firstly, just cognitive load theory um, in general. As I say, what I tried to do with this conversation is, is not just tread um, old ground, but I'm aware that for some listeners, some new listeners to the show, they perhaps won't be aware of cognitive load theory, or maybe some people will need a refresh 
fresher, but then I wanted to do new things. And in particular, those four areas that I really have been confused about for a long time. And, and Ollie really helped uh, clear those up for me. And um, first, I just wanted to make a couple of points that I have made before um, uh, in takeaways with regard to cognitive load theory. So forgive me here um, if you've heard me rambling on about this. But I know there's the cognitive load theory gets a lot of uh, criticism. And I've uh, had guests on, on this show who've, um, who, who have been big critics of it. I'm thinking particularly of uh, Dr. Helen Williams and, and Jules Dolby, two of my fa favourite interviews. Um, but I just want to reiterate here just exactly why I find cognitive load theory so useful. I find it a useful model to help me frame my planning. It really makes me consider extraneous load. That's the big thing. And now I've got this, this concept of extraneous load in my head and I'm, I'm aware of things like the redundancy effect and particularly the split attention effect. Being aware of those just makes me reevaluate things that I used to do without even thinking about it, like what my PowerPoints uh, looked like, how I would speak whilst my students were still trying to read, how I would design certain things with, with, with the image not being integrated properly into the text, and what my classroom environment would look like, and how I would walk and talk around the room, and all these things. Things that, that some, some listeners may be, be thinking, well, it's all obvious, but it really, really wasn't obvious to me. And that's the most useful thing I find for cognitive load theory. It just provides me with a model that, that helps me remember things. If I have this concept of extraneous load in my head, um, hopefully when I'm planning lessons or planning CPD, I'm less likely to, to fall into the trap of, of generating extraneous load for my students or audience. Um, I really liked as well um, the, the notion of element interactivity, the way Ollie explained it, and how I can now link it to, to the idea of atomization. So the idea that it's not fixed element interactivity. Of course, all maths is linked together and that can be really, really daunting and, and a high cognitive load if you don't understand all the connections. But the point Ollie was making is element interactivity is not fixed. It's dependent on knowledge, on prior knowledge. So if, for example, I'm teaching a brand new concept, let's say I always use this, it's boring as anything, but let's say adding fractions, that's got a really high element interactivity. If you're not familiar with things like lowest common multiple, equivalent fractions, how to simplify number bonds and so on. And, and what happens there, and we've all been there, that you try and teach it and students really struggle because they can't focus on the new idea, this new concept of adding fractions, because all their attention is focused on the components that, 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 that kind of build the foundations of this new idea, what I call the atoms. So it's got a really high element interactivity. However, if we can get our students to the place where all those atoms are familiar to them, then all their attention can be focused on the new idea and how all these familiar things fit together in this novel way. So it reduces the element interactivity. It reduces that cognitive load. So I really like that. I always like it when you can link together two things. So um, if you hear me talk in the future and I'm chatting about element interactivity, just remember, I didn't have a clue what I was talking about uh, up until today. Um, but yeah, anyway, keep that quiet. The next thing I just wanted to reflect upon was uh, teaching online. And I really, I really, really like Ollie's idea that, that we have to consider students' extraneous load, that this is, this is new. This is new to many students. Sure, they're familiar with um, being on computers, being on screens and so on, but they're not necessarily familiar with doing maths or English or geography on there. Maybe they're not familiar with using Teams or Zoom or Google Classroom. And maybe they've got distractions going on in the place that they study, whether it's the the, um, the kind of visual environment or whether it's because they've got brothers and sisters and stuff making noise around them. There's lots of extraneous load going on. We, we can't control it um, as well as we perhaps can do in a classroom environment. So 
we, as teachers, if we think of one of our goals is to try and reduce extraneous load, we've got to ask ourselves, how can we do that in the online environment? So we can um, advise our students, if possible, to try and, uh, try and do this somewhere that's relatively quiet. We can advise them perhaps between lessons or perhaps during the lesson just to kind of stand up and stretch so they're not thinking about kind of having a headache and they're not getting knackered and so on. Uh, but we can also do other things. Now, um, I've already recorded the next episode of the podcast with, with Joe Morgan, and that's about teaching online. And it's really interesting that the two episodes really fit well together because when Joe describes the lessons that she's learned from, from teaching online um, over the last few months, um, lots of these, the lots of the things she talks about, you can frame them as reducing students' extraneous load. So perhaps we can just teach using one platform and not have students going off to different websites. So everything Joe does is in Microsoft Teams, so they're not having to bomb off and and go and like log into a different website and so on and so forth. Uh, we can reduce the content, not just the content of our slides in terms of uh, reducing text and so on and so forth, but perhaps even the content of our lessons. Maybe certainly initially until everybody gets a bit more used to it we're not going to get through as much as we would do um, in a in a live lesson uh, in a face-to-face -face lesson and also I'm a big fan of this this transient information effect the fact that like you'll you'll do a worked example or something in a classroom and perhaps you'll write um, the method for doing it on a on a non-interactive whiteboard so it's permanent it, it's there and then you carry on with your powerpoint or whatever that's really difficult to do um, in an online environment so what happens is you have the worked example on one slide you then move on to the next slide for the students to practice and unless they've written it down they've nothing to refer back to so we've got to consider that is and again joe will speak this is a bit of a spoiler alert but how she always kind of copies across her worked example so that the students have least got a method one method to follow um, on any slide where they have to do practice questions so considering students extraneous load when teaching online i think is a super useful thing to do not an easy thing to do but a really useful thing to do and then the final thing i just wanted to uh, reflect upon was the goal free effect it's really interesting to, to, to hear ollie say he's, he's not really found a way to make it work effectively in mathematics i've struggled you know uh, with it as well it's one of those things when you read it you think oh, that sounds absolutely superb and it, and it lends itself really well to maths but i've had really Really mixed results and I've spoke about this when I do CPD in person and um, it's hard to pinpoint with what classes it works well with it's not always the case that it works well with high achieving classes but not so well with low achieving or vice versa it really seems to be a mixed bag but what I like now is thanks to Wally I've got a framework for, for choosing the goal-free type of questions and problems I give to my students. So I like this. There's got to be a restricted number of actions. There's got to be rapid feedback and students have got to get reliable results so they know they're on the right track. And as I mentioned briefly to Ollie, I think something like Desmos Classroom is super, super useful for this. And it's one of those things that we, we'd never have opportunities. Well, most of us wouldn't have opportunities to, to have all students on a device in the classroom doing something like this. We'd have to book out a computer room or something. But now by, by definition, students are on, an, on a device once we're teaching remotely so perhaps we can experiment with things like desmos classroom or graphable the uh, the equation solver so that we can we can set our students these goal-free tasks and there's restricted actions because if it's desmos all they can really do is kind of draw graphs on there and so on if it's graphable it's all equations they're getting rapid feedback so they're seeing the results straight away and they're getting reliable results because it's not going to plot anything wrong for them so it's worth perhaps experimenting with things like Desmos Classroom or setting things up um, on a kind of online environment in ways that we just wouldn't have been able to uh, when students are back in the classroom and perhaps experimented even further with this with this notion of a goal-free effect.
yet. So there's just some thoughts from my conversation with Ollie. As I say, I absolutely love that. Lo love speaking to him. And just a reminder, if you wanted to snap up Ollie's book, and I really, really would recommend it. It's absolutely superb. Uh, Cognitive Load Theory in Action. Uh, John Catt, uh, who are Ollie's publishers and my publishers, are running a special promo for Mr. Barton Maths podcast listeners. If you type in the code Mr. Barton 40, that's Mr. Barton 40, into the shopping cart uh, at the end when you're checking out uh, on the checkout page, then you'll uh, receive a 40% discount on Ollie's book. And I think that's that's not too bad a deal at all so all that remains for me to do is to thank ollie for just a wonderful conversation to thank podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show to thank our sponsors um, of this episode arc maths and um, we couldn't really do this with without the sponsors so i really appreciate that and the biggest thank you of all to you my lovely loyal listeners for keeping on tuning in um as as ever if you want to support the podcast the easiest thing you can do is leave a, re a review wherever you get your podcast from it really makes a difference and uh, next best thing you could do uh, if you've already done a review is to recommend this podcast perhaps to a friend or a colleague yeah, check out maybe recommend a specific episode that you think they'll enjoy maybe it's this one and then if you really want to no obligation to do this but i do have a patreon page where you can uh, you can sign up to to make a small monthly donation that's uh, patreon.com forward slash mr barton maths anyway i've rambled on too much it's really good to be back i've got some cracking guests lined up for 2021 so uh, you take care of yourselves and i'll see you soon bye for now